invite you to take a Bible and turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's page 991 in these Bibles in the pews. And as you're doing so, I'd like to let our members know that, um, as you know, about each week I've been given an update on our ministry in Haiti since the uh, hurricane. And we uh, have partnered with El Shaddai Ministries International, which is a, a Haitian ministry that has a board in Miami uh, but uh, is led by two Haitian brothers named Donnie and Louis St. Germain. And Donnie has, and Louis both have preached here. Donnie's been here more times than that. Uh, Donnie and I have been on the phone almost every day, and he and their ministry have 124 churches there throughout uh, Haiti. Um, many were destroyed in the hurricane. A lot of those churches also have... Um, children's homes. Some are orphans. Some are children live there. They have 2,000 children that live spread out in these various places, but one of the hardest hit areas had 130 children, and they had moved them down to one of their school buildings, and since the hurricane, they had been sleeping on a concrete floor. And so Donnie and I spoke on the phone this past Wednesday, and I always asked him, Donnie, what do y'all need this week? And he said, we have put roofs back on, temporary roofs back on the children's homes where they were living, uh, and we need mattresses. They're still sleeping on the floor. And I said, how much are they? He said, they're $76. I said, he said, we need 100 And I said, how fast could you get them if you had the money right now? He said, I could get them in a day from Port-au-Prince. And so you, through your giving, we supplied those mattresses this past week. So those children... Uh, have mattresses to sleep on because of the generosity and beyond of this congregation that, that we wired the money uh, there. And so I want to let you know that. It's, it's always exciting to see tangible results. So the needs there are, are like a bottomless hole. And the roofing they have put on, like asking, what does Samaritan's Purse do, <clears throat> that international ministry, as far as roofing? He said all they do is tarps just tarps. So construction crews are coming in that will put permanent roofing on. I've also been asked, why do they not build houses to South Florida standards? Good, good South Florida, not any South Florida standard. And it's strictly because of cost. When you're raising money, like from us, you say, well, we can build this house for these children for $20,000, or we could do all the special rebar and the roofing and everything to make it hurricane proof and it will be two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> what's well, more we're going to go with the twenty twenty and twenty five thousand dollar house and so that's how we have this but we should rejoice in that now back to first timothy chapter one um, and the context of this is i, I want to tell you uh the, the the background of this passage and it's really an autobiographical explanation by the Apostle Paul of his conversion. And then I want to tell you about a man from the Reformation that had a very similar thing happen to him and how he has influenced us to this day. Uh, so before I read it, uh, as Chuck reminded us earlier, tomorrow marks 499 years since uh, Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic priest and a college professor, nailed these uh, public on this public bulletin board at the Castle Church at Wittenberg, Germany, these 95 Latin theses or statements 
and he invited public discussion on the same. And within three years of that action, what we look back at as the Protestant Reformation was underway, all that was not at all in Martin Luther's plans or intention when he did that. He was wrestling at a personal level with the question, how can a person be right with God? And hopefully we all wrestle with that. How can I be right with God? That's what drove him at that time. 1,500 years before him lived the Apostle Paul, and he had wrestled with the same question. And so he writes this letter to his pastor friend Timothy, who's in the ancient large city of Ephesus, and although it was written to Timothy, and it has a lot of personal references in there, it was to be read by all the churches, and so the wisdom for them is also for us today. And he writes these words, I'll read verses 12 and following. Hear God's word. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray together. And Father, we do pray that we would recognize you, your majesty and see you as the King uh, of all the ages and immortal, invisible, and the only God through this time together. In Christ's name, amen. In this passage, Paul begins by noting three related blessings. He thanks God, first of all, in verse 12, that the Lord has given him strength. And second, he says he thanks Christ that he judged me faithful. And third, he thanks Christ for appointing me to his service. As you know, the Apostle Paul was appointed by God to be a missionary, to take the good news about Christ to the non-Jewish world. And then in verse 13, he tells about himself, for which he's thankful. He's thankful for the reasons that he gives of what he had been. First, he describes what he had been like. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. Another translation of the same words is a violent man. Blasphemer, persecutor, violent man. His blasphemy had been shown in how he spoke evil of Jesus Christ and tried to force others to do the same. He was a persecutor in trying to destroy the church. And then behind the blasphemy and the persecution, he was a violent man who looked at others by his own admission with arrogance and contempt. We read all about this in the book of Acts, where, where beginning in chapter 6 and 7 with the killing of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, we begin there reading about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was born in the city of Tarsus, which was a center of great learning. He was born as a Roman citizen, and he enjoyed the privileges, the legal privileges of such. He was educated under a well-named 
well-known tutor named Gamaliel at that time. Paul or Saul was Jewish and he was zealous in his faith. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He became a Pharisee. That means he was at the top of the food chain as far as the Jewish elite of his day. And he truly believed the followers of Jesus were not only wrong, they were dangerous. So we shouldn't doubt at all that he was 100% sincere in his desire to see them silenced, whether through death, like the killing of Stephen, where he tended to the cloaks of those who picked up the rocks and threw them to kill Stephen, and he commended what they did, or whether it was him getting legal orders to go or legal permission to go and see Christians locked up in jail. And so with that background in mind, he says he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And then he describes how he received mercy in verse 13. We know that he received it in a very spectacular way. The book of Acts tells us he's traveling on the road to a city called Damascus. Uh, a light came to him down out of heaven. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice speak to him saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's struck blind for three days. During that time, he, he, he doesn't eat or drink. God sends a man named Ananias to Saul. And Saul is converted and becomes Paul the apostle. So he received mercy and grace and faith and love. And now years later, when he writes about it to Timothy, he is, it is still fresh on his mind. Uh, to use our terminology today, grace was still amazing to him. He wasn't bored with it. He had not grown used to it. He was still amazed at the mercy God had shown him. And so it's no wonder then in verse 15 that he says it is a trustworthy saying. You can take this to the bank. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So what is he affirming there? He is affirming that the gospel is trustworthy. The good news of Christ is a firm foundation to stand on. He's also saying that that good news is universal. It's for all people. Third, the essence of the gospel is that Christ came to save sinners. And fourth, the application of the gospel is personal. It's for you individually. It's not just something that goes out broadcast to the world, but it, it, ha it demands an individual response. But then he says that he is the foremost of sinners. Now, can he mean that? I mean, how, how would he know? of the population of the world at that time if he ranked as the worst among all people as far as being the foremost or the chief of sinners. Well, I don't think his intent was to be literal at that point. Let me explain. If you are trying to get to heaven by being good, if that's your notion today, you think, well, I, I just try to live by the golden rule. And in the end, I think God will weigh my good works against my bad works, and the good works will tip the scales. Well, to, to try to do that, you have to do it by comparing yourself with others. And therefore, you say, well, I know I may not be a saint, but I'm better than that guy. Man, if everybody knew what he did, they think more of me, or I'm better than she is, or I'm See, the only way that system works is by comparison. Well, what happens when we meet Christ is everybody else fades away because he sees us as we really are. 
And then we see that I am a sinner in need of redemption. And what everybody else does or hadn't done or how I relate to them is of no significance and has no bearing. I must answer to God. The wages of sin is death. And so what Paul means is he saw himself because when, when we see ourselves as we really are, then we begin to see the depth of our sin. And we have that humility to say, I don't know that person's motivations, but I know my motivations, and they are, they are dark, and they are totally self-centered. So why had God had mercy on him? He says in verse 16, that in me is the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying that his conversion was a prototype, was a model of what all conversions later could be. He seems to be speaking to us across the centuries and say, don't despair. If God could save me, if God had mercy on me, he can have mercy on anybody. It's good news. It's great news. So although, in summary of this passage, although Paul had been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, the grace of God had overwhelmed him. And he received mercy in order to display for the benefit of future generations like us the limitless patience of Christ. It was this experience of God's grace, mercy, and patience which form the foundation of Paul's evangelistic work. And so in response to it, he breaks forth in praise in verse 17. And he says four things about God. He's eternal, that is the king of the ages. He is immortal. He's not subject to death and decay. He is invisible. He's beyond the limits of human horizons. He is the only God. He has no rivals. Now one of the men associated with the Protestant Reformation, what became known as the Protestant Reformation whose entire ministry was characterized by a love for the glory of Christ. You might say that that last verse, verse 17, would have characterized the ministry of John Calvin. Now, I know if you're not a Presbyterian and you happen to wander in here today and you're thinking you're a Mulberry Methodist and you just realize that, no, I'm in the wrong place. You say, you Presbyterians, y'all talk about John Calvin all the time. No, we don't. I probably mention other preachers far more than him. Um, and that's not a good thing. But I keep manuscripts of all my sermons. And by my records, the last time I talked about John Calvin was six years ago. Okay? So uh, that ought to be ashamed of that. I mean, I should, I should fall down and confess that, I guess. So, but we don't talk about John Calvin all the time. But I'm going to talk about him now. Here was a man who was born in 1509. He was eight in France. He was eight years old when Martin Luther nailed those theses to that castle church in Germany. We know very little about Calvin's early home life. We do know that when he was 14 years old, his mother had died by that time, and his father sent him to study theology at the University of Paris, which was untouched by the Reformation. Anything Martin Luther and others were doing in Germany, the University of Paris in France was, I mean, thoroughly Roman Catholic, and, and so they were untouched by the Reformation. So he goes there and studies for five years. I mean, didn't you go to college at age 14? Uh, we did in Alabama. <laughs> no, we didn't. Um, so he studies there for, for five years, and his father ends up with some kind of disagreement with the church. Not a theological, doctrinal problem. It's had something to do with money. 
And so he told his son to, to leave the study of theology and to study law, uh, which he did. He entered law school and studied in Orleans and, and uh, elsewhere. And then his father died in May of 1531, and at that time John Calvin was 21 years old. And with his father's death, he felt a freedom that although he really loved the law, he did not want to work and, and practice law. So he turned to his first love, which was the classics, Greek and Latin and so forth. And at age 23, he published his first book, which was a commentary on Seneca. And during, sometime during this time, around age 23, between 21 and 23, he had come into contact with the message and the spirit of the Reformation. And also, something dramatic had happened in his life. He had been converted. From all indication, he had become a believer. And he compared this, though we don't know the details, he compared his conversion with the experience of Lazarus being called out of the tomb when he had died and Jesus called him forth with life. So in his early 20s, John Calvin experienced the miracle of having blind eyes opened by the Holy Spirit to understand the gospel. And from that point on, what we see in his life and in his ministry and what drove him was the majesty of God and the word of God and how these are interwoven. That the word of God, the scriptures, mediate the majesty of God. That's where we see the majesty of God is through God's word. And at the same time, our understanding of the majesty of God is vindicated by the word of God. Those would be the two things that drove him in the, his ministry of teaching and preaching from that point forward. Now, persecution for reformers was fierce in France at that time. People were being burned alive. And it forced him and many others to flee. And he ultimately settled in Geneva, Switzerland. And there he devoted himself to opening the scriptures through preaching and through writing. And he became one of the ministers at St. Peter's Church. Though I've never been there, I've seen pictures. I'm told that the church building and the pulpit used by Calvin is still there today. After a couple of years of being in Geneva, Switzerland, he and another reformer named William Farrell got at cross purposes over some issue with the city council and they were told to leave Geneva, which they did. So they went back into France to the city of Strasbourg. Some of you have been there. Strasbourg is right on the border of France and Germany. So you could still flee. Oh, even though you're in France, he went back there and he taught. But the most, he taught theology. And he was there about two years. And the most important thing, though, that happened when John Calvin was in Strasbourg was he found a wife. There was an Anabaptist. If you don't know what that means, that, that came out of the Reformation. Those were, that was a group that was against baptism infant baptism, which is interesting because they were in Calvin's church, this couple, John and Idolette Stordure. Well, John, in the spring of 1540, I believe it was, he dies of the plague. They had two children. And toward the end of that year, John Calvin and the widow, Idolette, were married. And she brought into their home uh, a son and a daughter. Now, not long after this, they returned to Geneva. 
And for the last 23 years of his life, he would minister there at St. Peter's in Geneva, and he died in his 50s. Uh, he and Idolette had one son who died soon after birth, he died two weeks after birth. And then they had two more children at different times, both of whom died either at birth or soon after birth. And then in March of 19, 1549, after nine, almost nine years of marriage, about eight and a half years of marriage, Idolette died of what was probably tuberculosis. And before she died, Calvin promised her that he would take care of the two children, the son and the daughter. And Calvin loved Idolette uh, dearly, and he never remarried. And from that point on, if anything, he had been working practically nonstop before. Now he threw himself even more into his writing and preaching. The reason I tell you that is there's a temptation to think, well, those guys were paid academics. They had nothing to do all day but to sit and write and read. And that's why at age 26 he produced... Calvin's Institutes that we have, you know, that's why they, no, his plate was full with domestic responsibilities. In the house, which was a modest house in Geneva, lived, when Idolette was married, was still living, John Calvin and his wife, the son and the daughter, John Calvin's brother, Antoine, who was married and had four small children. Antoine's wife runs off with another man. Antoine remarries and has four more children. Now, by then, he had moved to another place. But John Calvin's life, well, here's a woman who heard me mention John Calvin six years ago, came up afterwards, she's no longer here, and she said, John Calvin was a real man. What she meant was, he knew, it, when your life is filled with domestic responsibilities, uh, it, was not a, it was not this ivory tower just sit and write all day and study. And so I thought I'd mention that. Now, here are some of the characteristics of John Calvin's preaching, which is primarily what he gave his life to. It was biblical. Uh, he believed the minister's chief mandate was to preach the word of God. And he wrote, when we enter the pulpit, it is not so that we may bring our own dreams and fancies with us, he was convinced that, quote, as soon as men, preachers, depart from the Bible, even in the smallest degree from God's word, they cannot preach anything but falsehoods and vanities and impostures and errors and deceit. He believed that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so this was the foundation of his preaching, the opening and exposition of Scripture. His preaching was sequential. Uh, for his, the 25 years of ministry at St. Peter's in Geneva, his approach was to preach systematically through entire books of the Bible. And here's how he did it. On Sunday mornings at around 7 a.m., he preached from the New Testament. Then on Sunday afternoon, he preached from the New Testament or one of the Psalms. And then every morning during the week, every other week, because there was another pastor there also, he preached from the Old Testament. And this went on for 25 years. So to give you an idea of what the production of that was, he preached for five years on the book of Acts. After the book of Acts, he went on to the, to the epistles of Thessalonians and preached 46 sermons. 
Then First and Second Corinthians, 186 sermons. Then he went to the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, so forth, 86 sermons. Then Galatians, 43 sermons. Ephesians, 48 sermons. Job, 159 sermons. Deuteronomy, 300, 200 on Deuteronomy. Isaiah, 353 sermons. And 123 on Genesis, and so on. His preaching was direct. He was remarkably straightforward and to the point. He typically began a sermon not with a story, but by summarizing and reviewing the previous sermon. And then he proceeded to the text, and he would explain it and apply it phrase by phrase. Now, here's what's really fascinating. It was all extemporaneous. He preached without notes. He had none of these things. No manuscripts, no index cards. He carried only a Bible into the pulpit. If he was preaching from the New Testament, he carried a Greek New Testament into the pulpit. If he was preaching from the Old Testament, he carried a Hebrew Bible into the pulpit. Now, so he was preaching spontaneously, but he was prepared. He had studied, he had researched, he did all that. But he did not want to be bound by notes so that he felt he could be more compassionate, passionate, I should say, and engage the hearers. And so his sermons were described as, quote, warm-hearted presentations of the truth. And he was thorough in his preparation and study, but he was extemporaneous in his delivery. His preaching was simple. Here was this man who many of us would call a genius, but his primary aim was not to communicate with the academic types. And therefore, he spoke with very simple grammar and very simple language so that everyone could understand it. That's a gift. A lot of people cannot do that. Also, his preaching was evangelistic. He had a great compassion, and he had great energy to reach the lost. And so he preached the gospel. He would plead with people to cast themselves upon the mercy of Christ. He urged his listeners to be saved through faith, for we must give ourselves to Christ completely. He was a true evangelist. And his preaching was filled with gratitude for the glory of God. At the close of his sermons, he would regularly exhort the congregation, let us fall before the majesty of our great God. And then he would conclude with a God-centered prayer. And so his intent, what he visualized, was to elevate the congregation before the throne of God through the mediation of God's word. He wanted to point his listeners upward to God. About the year before I was born, in 1954, this book was written. It had a different cover then. This is called Portrait of Calvin. If you want one brief explanatory biography, most of what I've said comes ultimately from this book. A man named T.H.L. Parker wrote this in 1954. And in 2008 in honor of the 500th anniversary of John Calvin's birth, John Piper and Desiring God Ministries republished it. And Piper writes a preface because this book had such an impact on him when he was in college. But I noted this little paragraph that Piper wrote on the back. He writes, I am eager for people to know Calvin, not because he was without flaws, 
or because he was one of the most influential theologians of the last 500 years, which he was, or because he shaped Western culture, which he did, but because he took the Bible so seriously and because what he saw on every page was the majesty of God and the glory of Christ. For the last minute or so, I want to tell you some of my own experience from the last 18 months. About, most of you know that about 18 months ago, I, I went through what many Christians through the ages have called the dark night of the soul. And it lasted about three months. And many of you prayed me out of it, and a lot of doctors helped me out of it. But I would begin that time when the church gave me a sabbatical to, to get well. I would start most mornings seated on a sofa. And I had several books that were meaningful at the time that I was reading and I would journal. But one, for some reason, the opening pages of Calvin's Institutes, chapter one, book one, chapter one, paragraph one, caught my attention. And I would wrestle with what did he mean? The words were simple, but I was trying to plumb the depths of this, what I'm going to tell you because I had heard this quotation and used this quotation in sermons. But I realized, I don't think I know what this really means. And here's why I say this. I was struggling with, what is the source of the anxiety that winds my spring so tight that has put me in this position? To where I've basically fried my nervous system and I've lost all emotional equilibrium. That's what happened to me. I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen from moment to moment. Was I going to break down and cry, or was I just going to go quiet? I was afraid to be around people. I didn't know how I was going to act. And so here's what he writes. The very first section, and there are two volumes this big. This is at the beginning. Section 1 of the Institutes. This is how it starts. Without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. The second section, the second paragraph, well, Section, three paragraphs, then the second section. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. So the first one, without the knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. Second, without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. And I would read his three or four paragraphs under each point. Day after day after day after day and say, Lord, give me understanding. What, why am I acting the way I'm acting and according to this, I can only know that by knowing you. And only by knowing you can I know myself. We live in a day of self-delusion. We think that we are people that we're not because we don't know God. And we can't really know ourselves until we see God. That's what he was saying. So to make a long story very short and to wrap this up, if you've been ministered at all from this pulpit, by not just this pastor, but many others, it ultimately goes back to this man who lived in Geneva, Switzerland, almost 500 years ago. Let's pray together. Our Father, like the Apostle Paul, we are recipients of your mercy. And it's not because we were so good, or we had earned it, or deserved it in some way, but you decided to show forth your grace and transform lives such as ours. Thank you that forgiveness is free and it's full and that it's offered to anyone. Everyone seated here today, may our trust be in Christ and him only. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.